Welcome to One Strategy Showcase. This is Fergus in Chicago. Today I talk with uh, Paul Feldwick about his new book, Why Does the Peddler Sing? What Creativity Really Means in Advertising. And this is Paul's second book. His first was Anatomy of Humbug. And in this new book, Paul makes the case that while popular and creative once went together in our industry, they no longer do. Uh, he suggests that we've lost our desire for popular, for work that is popular, and that in the quest to produce original work, agencies are overlooking the opportunity to be more successful for their clients. He makes the case that much of the work winning creative awards today is neither popular nor effective. And uh, if you look at what some new data that came out from Work this past week, Work shows that just 18% of creatively awarded ideas go on to win effectiveness awards. So that leaves a lot of room for improvement. And while, like me, Paul takes comfort in the increasing emphasis on effectiveness awards versus simply creative awards, he warns that creatives and planners need to get better aligned on agreed-upon outcomes in order to turn this around and, in essence, make planning's role purposeful. Paul, uh, in the conversation, makes a bunch of really interesting points and uh, credits folks like Peter Fields, Byron Sharp, Jenny Romaniuk, Les Bennett, and others for their groundworking help in sort of helping our industry better make the case for what leads to truly effective work. Uh, it's a terrific conversation. Uh, even if you've read Sharp, Fields, or Bennett, uh, I think uh, Paul definitely goes beyond that with some great points to support what he's talking about. So this is Paul Feldwick and his new book. Enjoy. So welcome to Paul Feldwick. Excited to have you on here. Your second book um, is what we're here to talk about. I've read your first book. I've read an excerpt from the second book. And I've seen uh, an interview that you kindly connected me to, uh, which was terrific to give me an overall flavor for the book. And we'll share at the end of the show where people can get their hands on hands on a copy. But but let's start off first, Paul, by talking about what motivated you to write the book. And was it did you see it as sort of a follow up in some way to Anatomy of Humbug? Yes, I, I think I did. I think even as I was finishing the Anatomy of Humbug, I was thinking. There's a whole lot more that I really want to say. And uh, I, I think where I kind of ended up at the end of the anatomy of humbug was focusing on this idea that advertising is actually a lot more show business than we usually give it credit for. And uh, the industry is kind of coy about that. They like to pretend that it's, it's a serious business of selling and giving propositions and messages and all that sort of thing. And then you look at actual ads and you realize, well, it's actually full of like talking animals and dancing polar bears and, you know, show show business. So I was intrigued by that thought and I wanted to explore it in much greater depth based on my own experience from Bozma Simi Pollitt and later BMPDDB, where we produced lots of very entertaining, popular advertising. And I wanted to, to really get into that. It took me about five years to to really explore those thoughts. Um, it did have the feeling of working on that difficult second album sometimes. <laughs> uh, but I, I hope it's come out pretty much as I hoped it would. I think it's, um, some people have said the book is a bit more personal than Anatomy of Humbug. I certainly would say it's probably a bit more opinionated than the Anatomy of Humbug, where I was trying to be very even-handed. And in the second book, I think I'm, I'm taking more of a position and arguing it 
And, you know, I mean, not to the point that I think other points of view are wrong, but because I think the point of view I'm taking is one that really needs to be vocalised. And I don't really remember seeing it vocalised, this idea that advertising has so much to do with entertainment. Um, people seem to have been very cautious about talking about that, and I wanted to really confront it head on. So what is it? What is the, what is the opposite of entertainment? I guess the opposite of entertainment. I mean, entertainment isn't quite the right word, but it's the best one I can come up with. I mean, show business is also a good word. Um, the notion that advertising, um, you know, is putting on a show. It is putting on, uh, well, one, one sort of nice antithesis that I do use in the book a couple of times is the difference between a performance and a pitch. Uh, you know, there's, there's putting on a show and there is basically telling people why your product is better. I think those both have their parts to play in advertising. But historically, for a very long time, the official professional discourse of advertising has been very much dominated by this idea of the sales proposition, the sales message, the consumer benefit, the reason why, and that ultimately it's all about transmitting those kind of messages. And even when people like Bill Bernbach talk about creativity, it's very clear always that they're saying, oh, creativity is only there as a way of, you know, helping to convey that sales message. They don't really sort of face up to the idea that the entertainment might actually be a very persuasive and influential um, way in, in its own right. But I believe it is. Uh, and I think that we now have much more evidence to back that up. I mean, I think I and a lot of other people always kind of intuitively felt that this was probably true, but we couldn't really explain why. But since we've had people like Byron Sharp and Jenny Romaniak from the Ehrenberg Bass Institute talking about the importance of mental availability, for example, this is really building a case that says, actually, the way advertising influences people, um, the way it builds brands, is not so much about giving people reasons why this brand is better than that one, but just making that brand come to mind more often in more situations and with a network of associations that are somehow more, perhaps more positive and more pleasurable. And all those things can be created through advertising that is entertaining and popular and famous and may or may not contain, um, you know, specific sales messages. So when you when you talk about entertainment as a term, or you talk about sort of show show businessy, what are we what are we to take from that definition? What does it mean to be entertaining? Because can, can creatively, it sort of leads you to think maybe in one way, or leads me to think in one way. But what are you thinking of when you use the term? I guess the bottom line is that what I mean by entertainment is it's something that gives us some kind of pleasure, so that we actively want to engage with it rather than something that is being told to us as if it were somehow, uh, you know, a, a lesson in school or, or something that we, you know, we ought to, to be thinking about in a very serious way. It works at a much more hedonistic sort of way. And I think that that is, that is what has historically been very important and yet consistently underrated and often indeed, you know, actively rejected. By, by the official discourse of advertising. Throughout my career in advertising, um, you know, while we succeeded in producing a whole lot of campaigns that were very entertaining, 
and I believe mostly worked because they were very entertaining, we still had to live a certain strange pretense that what we were really doing in these ads was we were communicating a product message, even if that product message was was banal or, you know, not really differentiating in any sense. You know, we'd have to pretend that our ads for PG Tips were about, um, you know, we have made a better tasting tea because rather than the fact that we were using these chimpanzees that the brand had used for the previous 35 years in very entertaining, funny commercials, which made people laugh, uh, in which the chimpanzees would sing and dance or whatever they, they used to do in those days. There was this kind of double think. And I think it was possible to sort of, at the risk of oversimplifying, characterize the ad business as the agencies were trying to producing stuff that was, you know, entertaining and and popular, um, singing and dancing and, and funny and all those things, or, or attractive in some way, whereas the clients were continually trying to rein them in and 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 stop them doing that as much as possible, in the belief that somehow this would get in the way of transmitting their all important. Um, selling proposition or, or reasons why or consumer benefits. But actually, something really odd has been creeping in. I think it's been creeping in very slowly since about the 1960s, but it's it's really now become a real problem, which is the idea that um, it's not just the clients who are getting in the way of producing popular, famous advertising, but it's actually the agencies themselves. And especially it's people in the creative departments of those agencies themselves, because they they no longer are so interested in producing work that is genuinely popular. They, they don't really care what the consumer thinks. They don't really care if the consumer gets it. They want their ads to look cool. They want their ads to be done by, you know, the currently fashionable director. They want, above all, to win creative awards for what they're doing. And, I mean, while there was a time when creative awards and popularity largely still went together, I've noticed those two things increasingly drifting apart. So that, you know, the ads that win creative awards now are, are even even the ones that have something going for them, they're, they're not that famous. They're not that popular. Um, so I think the worrying thing for me, and this is something I do deal with at some length in the new book, is um, you know this, this notion that the advertising agencies themselves have lost, they've lost the desire to be popular. And even when they may see the error of their ways and want now to get back into being popular, I think to some extent they've lost the habit of doing it and they've slightly forgotten how to do it. And I think that's why Peter Field's analysis, for example, or Orlando Wood's book, and both of whom have done much more sort of detailed analysis of this than, than I have, but I'm very much indebted to them for, for doing that kind of detailed work. They, they both show the evidence and, and they demonstrate in, in sort of fine detail, um, you know, how advertising has kind of lost that popular touch. So when I choose to use words like show business, when I choose to use words like famous and popular, I am deliberately choosing words, not just that kind of, you know, don't fit with that traditional, rational, um, you know, marketing department 
attitude of it's all about communicating the product benefits. Um, it's also, I'm choosing those words because they don't fit with what creative departments think they're doing. Those are not the words that you will hear. Is there a difference between um, something being popular and something being original? Um, well, original is another of those words that, uh, you know, has, has, has had far too much weight placed on it. I mean, I don't think originality is important for its own sake. Um, I think what we should be interested in, I, I think when we think about what's going to make a, a, an ad successful, it's not so very different from saying, what's going to make a new TV show successful? What's going to make a new record successful, a new band successful? What's going to make a new film franchise successful? I think these are all actually, if you put it within that, show business frame, those are all very parallel things. And in every case, you know, the things that succeed, yeah, they have a degree of originality, but some of them don't have that much originality. Right. Um, and in fact, if they're too original, they tend not to succeed because, you know, that just means they're kind of weird and they're, they're moving too fast for people. Um, a book that really influenced me while I was writing mine is um, a book called Hitmakers. It's written by an American journalist called Derek Thompson. And he tries to sort of examine this, well, ultimately sort of pretty imponderable question. Uh, what is it that makes some things really popular and famous and other things not? And of course, you know, if, if there was a formula for that, if there were simple rules for that, then, you know, we, we could all become, we could all become millionaires. But of course we don't because the, they don't exist. Um, but one of the points that Thompson makes at some length and makes very clearly, and which I, I'm indebted to him for because I, I also built on it, is that things that become popular and famous, the, the start point is, as I say, it's something that's got to give people some kind of pleasure. They've got to, they've got to dig it, really. Um, and what gives people pleasure is when you kind of strike the right balance between originality or novelty and familiarity, because those sort of play to two opposed psychological needs. One is our need for kind of comfort and safety and familiarity. The other is our need for excitement and, uh, and novelty and, and variety and, and something that's more interesting. Now, if, if the thing is totally without any kind of novelty, then it's probably not going to be a great success because, you know, it, it will just be more of the same. Having said that, you know, if you're a successful band, for example, you can produce a string of records that all sound reasonably like each other and they can all be reasonably successful hits. Um, so, you know, originality can be really overvalued um, because if you... If you just concentrate on originality, but you don't look at the, the familiarity context in which that is happening, you're just going to produce stuff that is weird for the sake of being weird. I look at uh, brands, our agency brands uh, here in the U.S., I would probably say that Crispin, uh, Crispin um, Porter-McGusky, they started off with this, this sort of um, 
the goal of making brands famous, famous being a word that they used. And it was probably, it was, it was probably the first brand in the U.S., agency brand in the U.S. that I was aware of that used that word. Hmm. And then more recently, I've been hearing um, uh, Martin Beverly use it a lot at Adam and Eve. Um, what, what do these guys know? Are, are these examples of brands? Of course, Adam and Eve TDB in London is where Les Bennett is housed. Do you feel that agencies like Adam and Eve um, and maybe Crispin, that they're, well, let's, let's just take Adam and Eve. Do you think that they are doing work that you think uh, aligns with the way, uh, with the thesis that you're presenting in your book? Um, yes, I think they are. Um, and even when they're not, I think they, they're kind of aspiring to. I mean, I don't want to really get into passing judgment on on one agency rather than another. I mean, obviously, Adam and Eve is the, it's the direct successor of the agency that I worked for for 30 years. It's still in the same offices. Um, I still have some friends there. Um, and I think that they are one of the agencies uh, that has genuinely understood the importance of fame. And they have picked up on the Byron Sharp work uh, and they have tried to do something with it. And I think in 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 quite a number of cases, I think they have succeeded. Um, so, yes. And, of course, any time an agency talks about fame, I, I, I can only applaud that. I think it's a good thing because I think it's hard to go wrong if you use that word. It's still no guarantee that you're going to go right because there is a catch. And actually, since you mentioned Adam and Eve, I'll tell you an anecdote. I mean, I was, soon after the Anatomy of Humbug came out, I said I'd go and give them a talk about the subject of the book, just for old time's sake, really, because it was my old agency. Um, and uh, a, a bunch of them were all gathered in a meeting room, and I, I gave a talk. And their chief strategic officer, one of the founders of Adam and Eve, Dave Golding, was sitting at the back of the room. And I was talking about what at that time I was referring to as simple fame. Uh, you may remember in Anatomy of Humbug, where I talk about the Byron Sharp mental availability thing. I say, well, it's just simple fame. It just sounds too simple. And Dave Golding sort of interrupted at that point. Um, and said, yeah, it's all very well to say that. But actually, the whole thing about fame is it's not easy to become famous. And that really stayed with me because I hadn't quite formulated that thought. And yet, the more I thought about it, I thought, that's, that's actually it. And that's, in a way, um, a large part of what the new book is all about as well. I mean, step one is acknowledging that Actually, in one, in one sense, the goal of advertising is very simple. It is to make your brand famous. And yet, when you think about it, for anything to become famous is a pretty long shot. Most people who want to be famous don't end up being famous. There's nothing inevitable about it. Um, you know, it's an uphill struggle, and it, it requires... It requires a huge amount of energy and resilience. It requires a huge amount of adaptability. It requires a certain amount of luck. And I think we shouldn't be 
um, embarrassed to admit that. I mean, uh, you may know that Andy Nairn um, from the UK agency Lucky Generals is yes. bringing out a book very soon, which is all about the role of luck. And I, I haven't, I haven't read it yet because it's not come out yet. But it seems to me like there's a nice little bit of overlap, I'm sure, between what I'm saying and what he's saying. But so you could then say, well, you know, if fame is just purely a matter of luck, what can any of us do about it? But even so, you know, there are plenty of things that you can do to increase your chances. And that is what it's the role of advertising to do. For anybody who's been in this business for more than uh, a few months, you've most likely come across the exact, exact sort of in, type of creative individual that you talk about, a, a creative individual who really is focused on just doing something that has never been done before, uh, something that is uh, original or something that, and the dread is to do something that uh, might be considered uh, formulaic, right? And, uh, and, and that's, and that's a, a reality of, I think, many people's experiences. I'm not saying that is necessarily something that is in, in every shop or is uh, across every individual in the creative department. And I know you're not saying that either, but I'm, I'm curious, I'm curious whether um, you think part of this problem lies in the individuals that we're recruiting, the, the, uh, the goals that an agency sets for itself in terms of its creative output. Is this, to what degree is this sort of a, an industry cultural problem that is about individuals versus the entire uh, agency dynamic? I think it is very much a cultural problem. Um, I mean, I mean, it's an incredibly difficult thing to pin down culture. I mean, it, it is, it is so powerful. It is so hard to change. And yet it's also so hard in some ways to, to put your finger on what exactly is it? Where exactly is it? How do we get to grips with this. It's a systemic thing. So it's not just to do with individuals. People act according to the roles that they're in and according to the contexts that they are in. Um, and I think this particular aspect of ad agency culture um, has grown up gradually over a long period of time. Um, I think one aspect of it is the importance that agencies have come to attach to creative awards, um, which have become gradually, I think, less and less focused on the consumer and more and more focused on something else. But, but um, what about what about effectiveness awards, though? I, my my side of this is that I see, and I I welcome the increased emphasis on effectiveness awards now versus creative awards. And it seems to me that I see a lot of the, the great, the, the, uh, the uh, good and great agencies leaning in on things like IPA effectiveness awards in Europe and the FE awards in the U S that maybe 10 years ago, wasn't the way it was here. Are, are you seeing hope when you see effectiveness? I, I absolutely see hope. I think effectiveness awards have made a massive difference because I think this is, I mean, this is very different thing from creative awards because what you have here is the closest thing you'll ever get given that it's never going to be 100% perfect, it's the nearest thing you'll ever get to saying, this is the kind of thing that really works. 
in the real world. And of course, you know, Peter Field and Les Binet have built on that spectacularly by doing this incredibly detailed analyses of, of, of the awards over long periods of time and saying, you know, insofar as there are patterns, we can say that the ads that work best are like this. And actually what they show is, you know, they are advertisements that are famous. Uh, that's a word that they use as well. Um, they are ads that are entertaining. They are ads that are liked. They are ads that are distinctive. I mean, all these things, and, and they are, it, it is much less important, although of course there's no one size fits all principle for all ads because ads work in many different ways. But on the whole, those kind of factors are the things that create effectiveness more than you know that old-fashioned idea of we are simply about communicating um, a benefit about the product which is somehow going to differentiate it so if we look at the potential challenge being that within agencies or certain agencies there's this challenge of culture and challenge of goals um, it leads me to our profession as planners and isn't it our responsibility to keep to harness creativity and to point it in, an, in a direction that delivers upon uh, strategic results. So how much responsibility does the practice of planning play in the majority of work not being as good as it could be? I mean, I think, I think there's always a massive job for an account planner or whatever you like to call them in ad agencies. And I think I would go back to, you know, what, what I used to do when I was a planner. I think the creatives and the planners have to some extent be trying to do the same thing. In other words, if they're both trying to produce work that is famous and popular and genuinely effective in that it will build brands through 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 that, then I think, you know, there's still plenty of room for them to argue about things because this is a, a creative process and it's never going to be without conflict. But if we start from a point of view that the creative people are actively trying to do something quite different, which is not to do with effectiveness, which is not to do with popularity, which is not to do with pleasing the audience, which is not to do with creating distinctive assets, then I think, you know, you are putting the planner in an absolutely impossible and soul-destroying position of, you know, trying to... You know, it's like trying to sort of persuade a horse to go up a hill where it doesn't want to. It, it ain't going to happen. I distrust this idea that it is somehow the role of the planners to inspire the creative people. I mean, if if the creative people are creative, you know, inspiration should be the kind of thing that they're doing. Now, they may well get inspiration from having a good conversation with the planner, and the planner will bring something to that conversation that will inspire them. But the idea that the creatives are somehow sitting there going, come on, inspire me. Oh, that's a shit brief. I can't possibly do anything with that. That, to me, is where it goes It goes wrong. And that's, that's where it becomes a sort of a pointless exercise. Um, and I think there is too much of that, or I've seen too much of that in my time. I think any agency that is any good must absolutely start from a point of view of saying, you know, effective, we are only here for one reason, which is to, to build our clients' brands or whatever their business objectives happen to be. 
Um, but they very quickly need to move from that to say, well, what does that actually mean in practice? Uh, and using, you know, my kind of templates, that very quickly should lead you to saying, well, that means raising mental availability, which makes making brands famous. And the best way of doing that, perhaps not the only way of doing it, but perhaps the commonest and, and the most powerful way of doing that, it, it is by making your brand famous in the same way that you would make a celebrity famous, or you would make a movie famous, um, or you'd make a computer game famous. You know, it, it has to be. It has to be good. It has to be pleasurable. Um, it, it, it's, it has to be good and pleasurable. It doesn't matter whether it's original or not. I mean, a lot of the things that are most successful when you look in any other form of, of, of entertainment, you know, they're, they're not necessarily that original. Somebody comes up with a new, a new TV quiz show, it will be a minor variation on every other TV quiz show. It can still be a huge success, um, you know, People, people like familiarity. It just needs to have enough that is distinctive about it that people go, oh, yes, that's a bit of a novelty. And also that makes it something that I will remember as distinct from all the other ones that are around. And therefore, I'm going to watch it again. I think when I first um, was exposed to, I, I got to read sort of the, the, the book summary for, for uh, Why Does the Peddler Sing? My first reaction was, well, the the work that might be considered um, uh, sort of uh, original and artistic or imaginative for imaginative imaginative purposes or for creative purely creative purposes might be ten percent. This is just my, my guess here. Might be ten percent or twenty percent of the work. the The work that's considered highly effective might be another ten percent of the work. And maybe they're the brands that are doing it right and that are seeing their returns. But then there's this 80% that sits in the middle. And it's the 80% of work that is neither popular, neither famous, neither imaginative, or ni neither self, uh, self-interested create creatively. That seems to me to be almost the bigger problem is how do we uh, have an impact as an in, on an industry on the work that isn't trying to be self uh, self-interested and isn't trying to be effective by traditional effectiveness metrics, but it's just sort of dull and forgettable in so many ways. I mean, does, does your thesis address that and ways to make that even better, that body of work? It doesn't address it explicitly, no. And I hadn't really thought of it in those terms. Um, I mean, I think that, uh, I mean, John Webster, once said to Dave Trott, apparently, and, and Dave tells his story himself that uh, when Trotty was a sort of young creative and John was the creative director at uh, at BMP, and he said, the difference between you and me, Dave, is I'm a professional and you're an amateur. I'm a professional. If I can make something great, I'll make something great. And if I can't make something great, I'll make something usable. Now, you say, if I can't make something great, I won't make anything at all. <laughs> um, I think there's a sort of pragmatism that goes with, that ought to go with <laughs> ad agencies. You know, um, not every ad is going to be the greatest thing in the world. Not every ad is going to be looked at in 30 years' time and hailed as a classic. Um, you know, like not every pop record is and not every movie is um, and not every book is. You know, um, in any of these fields, there are a few 
high-flying superstars. Um, there are a lot of flops, and there are a lot of kind of things in the middle doing the business. That's bound to be the same with advertising. Um, you know, there's only you know there's only going to be a limited number of those those superstar things. But I think what we could hope for is that you know when we're producing advertising i think we could take the view that well this may not be an ad that people will talk about in 30 years time but if people actually understand it and they remember it and it doesn't annoy them too much uh then perhaps <laughs> it's doing a good enough job and i think that would sort of that would actually have a huge effect on improving the amount of stuff that was actually not so bad. Do you feel that there's a formula for uh, fame, for work that becomes famous or work that becomes effective? I mean, are you advocating for a formula, put it that way? No, I don't think there can ever be a formula. I mean, I think it's an emergent, chaotic process and you know th there is never a formula but what i do suggest in the book and i i take a, a large section of the book to spell this out really is I, I suggest and i mean it's quite tentatively but i suggest there are there are four conditions that you have to pay attention to if you want to maximize your chances of fame um the first one is perhaps the obvious one you have to have something that people are going to like, <laughs> you know, something that people are going to want. Your record, your tune has to be catchy enough. Your characters have to be engaging enough. Your scripts have to be funny enough, whatever. You know, you have to produce something that's good enough. But that's only the start because that on its own isn't going to create fame. There are lots of fantastic things out there that never become famous. So what makes the difference? Well, I suggest there are sort of three things, three more things. The second one is you have got to reach mass audiences. And again, I sort of reference Derek Thompson's book, among other things here, where he shows that, you know, this idea that things go viral, it almost never actually happens. What really happens is that something gets picked up by somebody who effectively then broadcasts it. You know, the Harry Potter books, um, the Fifty Shades of Grey, they, they were sort of believed to be things that just kind of went from, from one person to another by word of mouth. What actually happens in each case is they get picked up by some very influential broadcaster who has millions of followers, and that way it gets spread around. And of course, there are many ways of doing that. And the, the most reliable, if not the most expensive way of doing that is by, you know, paid for media. So that's why paid for media still remains important. Um, the third aspect of fame is it has to be distinctive. This is where the whole thing about distinctive assets comes in. You know, people have to remember it's you and not anybody else. Uh, there has to be something about you that makes you sufficiently distinctive to your audience that they will remember you. Uh, you know, so things like um, the fact that this meerkat has a Russian accent and he wears a plum-colored smoking jacket. These are not just amusing details. They're actually details that lodge in people's minds and make him completely unlike anything else, completely unique so that he is distinctive. You know, when the Spice Girls were starting their career, they appear at the Brits and Jerry Halliwell improvises that famous Union Jack dress 
you know, I mean, that's a stroke of genius because, you know, everybody remembers that and that, that becomes one of the Spice Girls' many, you know, distinctive assets. And then the fourth thing is nothing is ever really famous until people are actually actively interacting with it and sharing it amongst themselves. The public are not passive in this. The public have to be given things that they can they can buy into, things that they want to own, whether it's through merchandise, you know, pictures on the walls, um, furry toys that you send out. Uh, they want to be given things to participate in, to argue about. You know, um, programs like Dancing with the Stars, Strictly Come Dancing, as we call it, you know, a, a lot of the pleasure of that is people are all sitting there on their, you know, WhatsApp groups, um, debating the finer points of the dancing while the program's on, and then spend the rest of the week arguing about who's going to bed with whom and, and you know, all the gossip. So all the ways in which people become actively involved, that is also what creates fame. Of course, that's the hardest part to control. And yet you can still do things that will give people opportunities to do it and you can encourage it. I mean, goodness me, look at the um, the uh, Harry and Meghan saga that's, that's unfolding as we go. I mean, <laughs> they've proved absolute masters of um, uh, how to manage their publicity on this. You know, I think um, this is the world in which advertising agencies ought to be living much more, the world of publicity. Paul Feldwick, author of Why Does the Peddler Sing? Uh, where can people get their hands on the book, Paul? It's now pretty much available through all the main channels. Uh, it's available through Amazon. Um, it's available through Barnes & Noble or Foils or Book Depository. Um, you can order it directly from the publisher, who are called Troubadour, and are currently offering it at a discount. Um, it is also available not just as a paperback, but as an ebook. So it's on Kindle and Apple Books and so forth. And it's also available if you have uh, not been completely turned off by the sound of my voice. It's available as an audio book, um, which is through uh, through Audible. Thank you, Paul, for your time this morning. It's been great talking to you. Yeah, thanks a lot. And we'll see everybody in the next episode.